Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, the Catholic podcast where we do a verse-by-verse exegesis of Scripture. And I know so many of you are benefiting from this approach of going through verse-by-verse, and it really helps us to learn what Jesus' intention was when he used certain words, and how the early church would have understood a lot of these texts. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50. An argument started between the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Jesus knew what thoughts were going through their minds, and he took a little child and set him by his side, and then said to them, Anyone who welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among you all, that is the one who is great. John spoke up. Master, he said, we saw a man casting out devils in your name, and because he is not with us, we tried to stop him. But Jesus said to him, you must not stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. So that's our passage today. It's a really interesting one. Now, I should say up front with this one, it's it's a much shorter version than what appears in the other gospel. So if you want to see the full conversation here between Jesus and the apostles. Jesus actually says several things here about children that are not recorded in Luke's version. But if you look at Matthew's version in Matthew chapter 18 or Mark's version in chapter 9, you can see the full version there. But let's get into our text today. So we're in Luke chapter 9. We're getting towards the end of the first part of Luke. So Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee And he started telling the disciples that the Son of Man must be persecuted and killed. And as you probably remember, the disciples don't understand what he means by that, because that does not match their expectations of the Messiah. Verse 46, an argument started between the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this actually takes place on the road. They're arguing on the road around Galilee. The disciples have been doing ministry with Jesus for a while now, and probably each of them has racked up some significant healings and exorcisms. They've probably all been doing quite significant things for the kingdom, and now they're starting to compare each other. Maybe they're doing like kind of a scorecard comparison. The other gospels make it clear that they're actually arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So um, Matthew is a bit more specific here. It's a conversation about the kingdom of heaven. Now, we can look at these disciples and judge them and say the fact that they're arguing about who's the greatest, that's not very Christian behavior. And in a way, that's right. It tells us that disciples aren't truly transformed by God yet. They haven't really got the point of what the kingdom is all about. But on the other hand, you could say that in a sense, it is kind of normal Jewish behavior for men at the time to sort of compete against each other and to um, say things like this to each other. So we shouldn't judge this particular episode too harshly. Certainly, it does reveal that they have not understood the nature of their leadership in the kingdom, though. And Luke includes this uh, story, not sparing the disciples' weakness. And it's not so that we can marvel at their ineptitude or how bad they are, but so that we as the readers can come face to face with our own tendencies to seek glory in competition with others. There's certainly an element of that there. We should reflect on ourselves and our view of what leadership in the kingdom should look like. Because as long as we have this earthly, and as long as Luke's original readers have this earthly idea of leadership, they're not fully going to understand what Jesus' kingdom should look like. So we go to verse 47. It says, Jesus knew what thoughts were going through their minds. 
or more literally there, the Greek says he perceived the thoughts of their hearts. So Jesus reads their minds here. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? We often skip over this, but Jesus reads their minds, so he knows what they're arguing about. Luke's version now says at this point, he took a child and set him by his side. Now, Mark's version tells us the setting of this. By now, they have arrived in Capernaum, and it appears that they're in Jesus' own house in Capernaum. They're inside the home. And so when Jesus picks up the child here, it's probably one of his own extended relatives, one of his own uh, people in, in his extended family who is a young child. And so he takes the child and puts them in the middle of the apostles, and he's going to use the child as a teaching opportunity. He wants the disciples, his 12 apostles, to learn something about the child. This is the point in Matthew's version where Jesus says to the apostles, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when we put the various gospel accounts together, we see here that Jesus actually said various things about children here, all teaching the apostles lessons about how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. But in our version, in Luke, he goes straight into saying, anyone who welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Or you can translate welcomes as receives. Anyone who receives this child receives me. What exactly does it mean to receive a child? It's an interesting phrase. In ancient societies, typically children were not particularly well regarded. In fact, they were kind of regarded as not fully persons. They didn't have the same legal status as adults, and they were kind of frowned upon. So to accept a child would mean to lovingly serve and take care of the child, which is not what a lot of society would have done for that child, because they didn't, you could say that they didn't see children as worth investing as much time in as adults. That's certainly one way of looking at this, because children were sort of considered to be not as equal as adults. So Jesus is teaching his apostles here that they must have generosity and have take responsibility for the outcasts and the most helpless. And notice the key phrase in there, anyone who welcomes this little child in my name. So the teaching here is something like this. Jesus wants the apostles to make an effort to accept people who are on the margins of society as part of being Jesus' apostles in Jesus' names. And when they do that, they will be following Jesus' commands and welcoming Jesus in a sense. So again, another way of looking at this is children have low social status. So most people will be naturally inclined to ignore them in that culture. But Jesus says these are precisely the kinds of people that Christian disciples are called to welcome. They have to be kind of countercultural here. They should be welcoming people that other people are not welcoming. And so Jesus says that anyone who does this, particularly any apostle who does this, is following Christ's will. Anyone who doesn't isn't following Christ's will. And notice he says, anyone who receives one such child in my name receives me. And you could say that in a sense here, Jesus is identifying himself with the outcasts of the world. And this would certainly fit Luke's overall message because he constantly focuses on the outcasts of society. Jesus is saying that whenever an outcast is welcomed by a Christian, Jesus is welcomed in a mysterious sense too. And you've probably heard a few sermons preached about this where Jesus is mysteriously present amongst the poor. And the catechism actually talks about that too. So maybe there's a spiritual sense here of the text where Jesus is putting himself in solidarity with the marginalized in quite a real way. That could be there in the text. Now there's more to this though. If you keep reading, it's not just anyone who receives a child like this receives Jesus. Jesus now adds on this. 
whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. This is interesting. So Jesus is saying, not only do you welcome him, Jesus, you also welcome God if you accept children. So what's going on in this phrase here? In the ancient world, a messenger was supposed to be afforded the same respect and dignity as the person who sent him. And they were considered to be full representatives of the authority who sent them. So Jesus is making quite a radical claim here. He's saying that our treatment and the apostles' treatment of the outcasts of society is a reflection of how we feel about Jesus. And on top of that, it's a reflection on how we feel about God. That's the chain here. The way we treat outcasts represents the way we feel about Jesus. And that also represents the way we feel about God. So it's quite a profound teaching here. Notice Jesus uses the phrase, the one who sent me. So Jesus is alluding to his own mission and incarnation. He says he has been sent to earth by God. The word here for send is actually apostello. Jesus is the apostle of the father. We don't often think about Jesus as an apostle, but he actually is. He's the one who's sent on a mission from the father. And Jesus' own apostles are an extension of that same apostleship. Jesus goes on, for the least among you all, that is the one who is great. So the teaching here is that to the extent that a Christian welcomes children, that is the extent to which they will be greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus is directly addressing the argument they're having about who is the greatest. Jesus says, the one who makes himself least is the one who is greatest in the kingdom. Now, Mark's version of this makes it a little clearer. Jesus says in Mark's version, the greatest must make himself last and servant of all. So rather than earthly kings who often lorded it over the people, Jesus says the 12 apostles are called to be servants of all people. That's what the phrase the least means, to be servants of all people. And they should use their authority for this purpose, to serve others, not to lord it over others. Now that in in itself is a radical idea in the ancient world because If you had authority, it was expected that you would kind of lord it over people. Humility and weakness were not viewed as virtues. As Christians, we view them as virtues now. But in the ancient world, humility and weakness were not really virtues. Even in Judaism, they weren't really. No one would ever aspire to be humble or weak. So this is one thing that sets early Christianity apart from Judaism. As part of the gradual revelation, Jesus reveals to the apostles that God's ultimate will is that people would be humble and, in a sense, weak. They would use their power to serve others. That was actually quite radical at the time. So what's the connection between the welcoming of the child and the argument about being the greatest? Jesus is using welcoming children as an example of how the disciples are called to become the least by giving it themselves to the most vulnerable in society. So he sees that the disciples have been arguing about who the greatest is. And by the time they get to the house, Jesus uses the child who's in the house as a teaching opportunity to correct their misconceptions about what true leadership in the kingdom is going to look like. And he wants to make sure that the disciples know this because he knows they are going to be the leaders of his church. He wants to make sure that they are servant leaders. There might also be a connection here to what Jesus has just told them about his own impending suffering. Just before this, Jesus predicted that he is going to suffer and the apostles were scoffing at the idea of suffering. Maybe there's an extension here when Jesus says, actually, your leadership is going to involve suffering and humiliation in a way that they don't necessarily expect. 
Now, the next little part is unique to Luke. You won't find this bit in Matthew and Mark's version. Verse 49, John spoke up. So presumably this is John, son of Zebedee, the author of the Gospel of John. We don't often hear John speaking in the Gospels. He does a couple of times. But here we have the author of the Gospel of John who says something in the Gospel of Luke. And here's what he says. Master, we saw a man casting out devils in your name. This is interesting, isn't it? Apparently people who were kind of following Jesus and were intrigued by him, some of them were going around doing exorcisms in his name, casting out demons, even though they don't actually follow Jesus physically in the main group. They've kind of made their own little break-off ministry where they're casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John isn't too happy about this. Remember, John is also the one who elsewhere in the gospel says, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? So he seems to be at this point quite a reactionary person who gets sort of fired up for Jesus very quickly. And this is another example of that, isn't it? He sees a man casting out devils in your name and John says, he is not with us or more literally, he does not follow us. So we try to stop him. Now, more literally there, the Greek is we forbade him. So this is something that obviously happened earlier, and now John is telling Jesus about it. He says, they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and the apostles made him stop. They forbade him from doing that. This is reminiscent of an incident in the Old Testament. If you look at Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, Joshua tries to stop some men who were prophesying because they were sort of not exactly authorized prophets in that sense. What's going on here? Maybe the apostles are jealous because they themselves are struggling to cast out demons. We know that from earlier in this chapter, verse 37 to 43, there's an incident recounted where the apostles are struggling to cast out demons. And we covered that as a bonus episode of the podcast. If you check out the Patreon page, you can have a look for this exegesis of Luke chapter 9, where the apostles struggled or cast out demons. So maybe there's an element of jealousy here. There's another interesting element of this, though. The fact that the apostles went and told someone to stop doing this shows that they actually have authority to do that. They went and used their authority to stop someone preaching in the name of Jesus because the apostles are Jesus' special appointed messengers who are given his authority, whereas this other person doesn't have that. So the apostles use their authority to stop him doing that. Now, there's no... Jesus doesn't say here, you don't have authority to do that, John. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says that in this case, he was probably wrong to use his authority to stop the man. So I think that's an interesting aspect of it. The apostles, even at this time while Jesus is alive, they have authority to go and stop people preaching if it's not prudent, if they're not doing it in the right way. And Jesus here says, you must not stop him or do not forbid him. Just like in the Numbers story, Numbers chapter 11, verse 29 Moses corrects Joshua and says, Joshua, you need to let these prophets keep prophesying. Here, Jesus corrects John's jealousy and tells the apostles not to prevent this person from casting out demons. We never get more information about this person who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. We don't know whether he was doing it legitimately as a follower of Jesus, just doing his best to do Jesus' will, or whether he's doing it for his own power. That's not entirely clear here. All we have is John's short recollection of the incident and Jesus' comments about what they should have done in that situation. And then Jesus adds in this phrase, anyone who is not against you is for you. So the meaning here appears to be that in the context of Jesus' ministry, anyone who is doing things in the name of Jesus and the kingdom is on the same side as the apostles. 
Perhaps what they're doing is not entirely appropriate. Maybe that person shouldn't really have been doing it the way that they were doing it. But at least during the short time that Jesus is on earth, Jesus wants his name to spread as far as possible. So he says, leave the person alone. Let him keep casting out demons in my name. Now, obviously, this needs to be qualified by other things Jesus says about this. In Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that on judgment day, many people are going to appear before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And in that scenario, those people still don't make it into heaven because they did not do the Father's will. So when we balance it with other things from the other gospels, we learn that just because someone can cast out demons in Jesus' name is not actually a guarantee that they're following the Father's will. Um, and so that's an interesting application of this. But at least in this case, in Luke's uh, Luke chapter 9 here, Jesus says, if anyone's casting out demons in my name, that is a good thing in and of itself, and they should be allowed to do that. Now, the apostles here, they do gradually come to learn that God does sometimes work in unexpected ways and in ways that go beyond the limits of the core group. Particularly in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit descends on Gentiles, which probably the apostles weren't expecting, and God tells the apostles that they must not prevent the Gentiles from being baptized. And it's the same Greek word that's used there, do not prevent them from being baptized. You can see that in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. So this is the last time Jesus is in Capernaum in Luke's gospel. From here in Luke, he begins his journey to Jerusalem. It's a long journey to Jerusalem, but this kind of ends the first section of Luke. Now, it's clear that even here, after the Galilean ministry, the apostles do not yet fully understand the kingdom and the way that discipleship is supposed to work. So Jesus is going to use uh, the journey to Jerusalem to teach them more about discipleship. So we're going to see more information about how Jesus expects the disciples to act in the coming chapters of Luke. There's no catechism references for us to look at today, so we'll leave our exegesis there. It's one of those short, interesting passages in Luke uh, that's well worth diving into because that at least that second half is not found in the other Gospels. If you think there's other people in your life who would benefit from hearing these exegesis episodes, please share the podcast with them. It's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes. Please leave a rating on iTunes as well. That would help the uh, podcast get seen by more people. And we'll continue in the coming days. Thank you.